are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also a professor of Old and New Testament and theology at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Over the past few weeks, I've been listening to some of the YouTube clips and podcasts from some of the leading provisionists that I have been interacting with over the years, especially Leighton Flowers and um, the guys from the Provisionist Podcast, uh, Provisionist Perspective YouTube channel. And they've been dealing with um, Ephesians and the doctrine of election, especially as presented in the book of Ephesians. And so what I wanted to do in this podcast is to do a deep dive into Ephesians chapter 1 and address some of their interpretations, some of their conclusions and understandings that that they've come to in regard to the issue of Ephesians chapter 1. As you know, I'm friends with Tyler Vela, who has the Freed Thinker podcast and he and I have had some offline conversations back and forth uh, determining how we were going to um, individually and maybe both together at a, at a future date um, address this issue as we both tend to interact with those that are in the non-reformed traditions, especially the provisionists. And so what I want to do is I just want to take a deep dive into Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. Now this is not going to be a verse by verse exegetical Um, teaching of the entire passage. Um, I do want to look at the grammar. I do want to look at the logic of Paul's flow of thought. And I do want to interact with some of the claims or some of the assertions that are made by leading provisionists such as uh, Leighton Flowers and others. And again, if you've listened to my podcast in the past, or maybe this is the first time you've listened, I've interacted with Leighton Flowers going all the way back to 2015. Uh, He and I have a cordial relationship. We definitely disagree on issues of soteriology, but we have come to um, appreciate each other's ministries, and I have no ill will towards Leighton Flowers or to Drew McLeod or Eric Kemp, the two great guys that are with the Provisionist Perspective. Um, I've been on their YouTube channel, and I've... uh, had some interviews with them, and so I consider these guys brothers in Christ. We just have some differing views, fundamentally differing views, when it comes to the issue of how to interpret Ephesians chapter 1. And so let's just, um, before we actually get into the text, I just want to make a few opening statements um, about what provisionists affirm. Uh, They do affirm that God is sovereign, Okay, that's one thing that we need to understand when we interact with provisionists is to not mislabel them or say things that they don't believe. Again, their definition of these things is different than the reform definition, and so I want to try to bring out those nuances and differences. But they do affirm that God is sovereign. Their definition of sovereign is different than ours. Our definition would be that he is meticulously sovereign over all things that come to pass. They also affirm that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of all things. To my knowledge, these guys aren't at least avowed open theists, so they do believe that God is omniscient. He has foreknowledge of all things. But yet, here's the the big issue that I found that they're affirming, the big issue that they're saying, okay? They would say that God either decrees or allows all things... And among the things that God allows is the free will decision 
of people to say either yes or no to Jesus. In other words, they would not deny that God has a sovereign decree. They would not deny that God is omniscience. But what they would say is, is that part of that sovereign decree is to give humans libertarian free will. So, in other words, God has, in some ways, limited his exhaustive, meticulous sovereignty by allowing or permitting humans to have libertarian free will. So God is sovereign in the sense that he has sovereignly decreed to give people libertarian free will. Now, this assertion has to be established from the scriptures because I don't believe there's any clear statement that God has sovereignly chosen to grant people libertarian free will. I think it's an inference on their part that they deduce from some scriptures. But if you look at the totality of the Bible's teaching on the nature of man, on anthropology, the issue of sin, there are numerous clear passages that teach that humans are fallen in Adam, that we are dead in sins and trespasses before salvation, that we were hostile to God, we were alienated from God, we were slaves to sin, we were blinded by Satan, we were under God's wrath from birth. So, you need to understand this about provisionists. They deny total inability and the bondage of the will as a condition inherited from Adam that every single person is born with. So, one of the fundamental tenets of provisionism is a denial of total inability. They'll affirm depravity, that we are corrupt, but they will not affirm, in fact, they vehemently deny total inability. Yet at the same time, they will affirm libertarian free will as part of God's sovereign plan. God has given, as part of his sovereign decree, humans the ability to choose positively or negatively for Christ using their libertarian free will. Now, there's another issue that most provisionists will also deny. They will deny unconditioned election of individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world. Most provisionists that you come across will hold to some type of corporate view of election. Many of you may be familiar with the traditional or classical Arminian view of foreknowledge or foreseen faith. That's not what I found provisionists hold to. They hold to corporate election. In other words, what they affirm is that God sovereignly set up a plan of salvation, a scheme or a group, and that whoever uses his or her libertarian free will to believe in Jesus at that time is marked in or placed in Christ, and thus, upon the use of your free will, you become part of the elect group. And I'm going to unpack that as we go on. So let's just interact with the provisionist understanding of Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Let's just start in verse 1 because I've been accused of saying, why do you go down to verse 3 and start there? Why don't you start with verse 1 where Paul establishes the the parameters of his discussion? And so in fairness, let's start in verse 1. Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Now, it took me a while to figure out the provisionist argument here because I've heard them say that um, the emphasis is on the faithful in Christ Jesus, that we need to understand that term. Who are the faithful in Christ Jesus? How did they, how did they get there? Because he starts out by talking about the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to argue that this phrase, the faithful in Christ Jesus, is a description of Paul's audience. It is not telling us how these faithful in Christ Jesus use their free will to quote-unquote get marked in Christ or as the cause of their election. Now let's just look at the, the introduction. One of the things you need to understand about epistles, ancient epistles, especially Pauline epistles, is that he would identify himself as the author, as the apostle, and then he would address the congregation, the particular church to whom he was writing. And so Paul calls himself an apostle by the will of God. He's even introducing some sovereignty here, that Paul did not appoint himself as an apostle. It was by the will of God. And you go back to the book of Acts and realize that Paul really had no choice over the matter. Christ sovereignly overcame his resistance, arrested him by sovereign grace, and called him to be an apostle. And then he addresses to the saints who are in Ephesus, who have believed in Christ. Now, who are the saints? Contextually and grammatically, you could say that the saints and the faithful in Christ are synonyms. It's, it's the same group. They are faithful in Christ. And you could say that they are faithful in Christ, they are saints by the will of God, the same way that Paul was called by the will of God. So this is merely a customary opening description of Paul's audience. This is not teaching us how they became elected to be in Christ or how they were in Christ. Paul doesn't get to that yet. The point of contention in this whole discussion in Ephesians 1, and listen to me very carefully, here's the point of contention. We don't want to be talking past each other. We want to be very clear when we interact with the provisionists that we understand their argumentation. We understand the points of contention. Here is the point of contention. It is this. How does one become in Christ? How do you get in Christ? How do you get in Him? That's the question. Because the phrase in Him or in Christ is repeated many times in this passage of Scripture. Now, the burden of proof is on the provisionist to somehow substantiate the claim that the term faithful in Christ tells us how a person got elected or how a person came to be in Christ. And, and, and before you jump down to verse 13, which I'll talk about in a moment, you have to establish it in the order that Paul writes it, okay, from the very beginning. Is this a customary title and description of Paul's audience, the faithful in Christ Jesus? Yes. Does it say anything about how they came to be in Christ Jesus? Not yet. Paul's going to unpack that as he gives his argumentation. Now, let's go and read just... Verses 3 through 5. Again, I'm not going to deal with all of this passage of Scripture because when I preached through Ephesians, I think back in 2010, I think I spent four sermons, maybe four or five sermons, just on Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. So, so this is a, some rich material. But let's just, let's just look at verses 3 through 5. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He, that would be the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So, here's the question. Is this a sovereign act of God who chose individuals and predestined individuals to be in Christ and to receive all these spiritual blessings? In other words, is this unconditional individual election to salvation and all the benefits that flow from Christ, actually from the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, or is this man using his libertarian free will to get, quote, marked in Christ or get placed in Christ as the condition or the reason for becoming part of the elect and thus receiving these spiritual blessings. The Reformed view and understanding of this passage is the only view that sees this as unconditional election. In other words, there are no conditions that the sinner has to meet in order to get elected. Traditional Arminian theology and corporate election theology Both are conditional. There's a condition that the sinner has to meet in order to become part of the elect, and that condition is faith. Whether it's foreseen faith that God looks through the corridors of time and sees a sinner choosing Christ, or whether it's libertarian free will to believe in Christ and thus becoming part of the elect group. Now, let's look carefully at this passage. The Father chose us in Christ. The Father chose us in Christ. The word chose is the only finite verb in verses 4 through 14 that is not without a relative clause. So it's kind of the the standout verb. It's the first verb in this passage of Scripture that really has, kind of stands alone. It's in the middle voice, which grammatically means that God chose us with great personal interest rather than it being an impersonal, random choice. Now, here's the question. Who is the us? God chose us. Notice it's in the first person plural. Us. Not God chose you. God chose us. Which would include Paul himself as the author and his readers at that time, both Jews and Gentiles that comprised the church in Ephesus, which was probably a circular letter to um, maybe an area of churches in that, in that region. And I think if we understand the scriptures, by extension, it's to us today, the readers of Ephesians who are also believers. Now, he chose us in Christ. Notice it does not say, as, as I look at this passage of scripture, we're going to look at what it does say and what it does not say. That's very important when you do exegesis of scripture. What does the text actually say? And what does the text not say? Notice what it does not say. It does not say he chose us in Christ through faith or he chose us through faith in Christ. There is no Greek word pistis or pistuo, faith, believe, trust, in this passage right here in verses 4 and 5 to show us how a person was chosen in Christ. 
Let the text speak for itself. The text simply says God, he's the subject, chose, finite verb, us, direct object, in Christ. Notice very carefully, it does not give the condition or foreseen faith as the reason or the grounding for our being chosen. Now, early church father Chrysostom, I appreciate Chrysostom. He was a good expository preacher. They called him the golden mouth because he was a great preacher. But he argued that faith was the condition for election. He was kind of the first church father to kind of maybe clarify this whole idea that when we choose Christ, we're then placed in Christ having, after having met the condition to be chosen. This could be, I don't have proof positive, but this could be where many of the provisionists get their interpretation if they go back to Christostom. Now, I want, again, want to be very clear. There's nothing in this text right here in the immediate context around the verb choose, and we'll get to predestined here in a moment, but at least around the verb choose that gives the condition of the election. There's no condition given, especially faith or trust. Because if there was a condition that had to be met, and it's not in the text, this would obligate God on our part to choose us based upon something that we did. God's choice of us would be contingent on our choice of Him. There's nothing here of faith, foreseen faith. There are no conditions in this text that would be the purpose or the reason for God's choosing of us. Now, the classical Arminian position at least affirms individual election to salvation, just like we as Calvinists affirm. So you line up the Arminian view and the Calvinistic view of this passage of Scripture, both understand election to be of individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world. The only real difference is what's the basis for the election. Why did God choose? For the Arminian faith is the condition that sinners have to meet in order for God to elect them. And God foresaw that faith when he looked down the quarters of time and saw a person choosing Christ. Who or who would not trust Christ? So if we let the text speak for itself, just in the immediate context, There are no conditions surrounding the verb choose concerning the reason or basis for the choosing. It doesn't mean there's not a reason. We'll get to that in just a moment. But at least in the initial context, there's there's nothing about faith being the reason for the choosing. Okay? Now, we know when it happened. When did God do his choosing? When did God make his choice? Very clearly, It was before the world was created, before the foundation of the world. So how can God choose us when we did not even exist yet or had not been born? This speaks of individual election to those whom the Father gave Jesus in the covenant of redemption. The text does not say we were chosen to, quote, believe in Jesus or we were chosen to be marked in him or we were chosen to be sealed with the Spirit, let the text speak for itself. The text simply says, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. I want you to notice something very careful. 
There is nothing in this text that speaks of God choosing a plan or a scheme. What is the direct object of chose? It's us. Not God chose a plan. God chose an elect group that would someday exist by people using their free will. No, the direct object is us. God chose us. Now, let me just give you a little bit of church history here. I've done this on on previous podcasts, but I think it's very important to understand how these certain interpretations have come into being. Um, Karl Barth, in his voluminous (laughs) series, Church Dogmatics, he reinterprets the classic reform position of unconditional election by shifting the object, the direct object of God's election away from individuals to Christ, the Son being the elect one. He basically says that the one that's chosen is Christ. He writes this, In its simplest and most comprehensive form, the dogma of predestination consists then in the assertion that the divine predestination is the election of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the electing God. And he is also elected man. So Bart rejected the historic Calvinistic view of individual election because he believed it regarded election, quote, as static fixed decision rather than a dynamic history between God and man. Now, Bart understood God's process of election under three major headings. Now, why am I giving you Karl Bart? Here's why I'm giving you Karl Bart. I've made this hypothesis before. I believe Karl Barth popularized corporate election in the 1940s. Herschel Hobbes, Southern Baptist, and we'll get to him in just a moment, adopted some of Barth's major teachings on the doctrine of election and then popularized this corporate view of election in Southern Baptist life in the 60s and 70s. But Barth understood God's process of election under three major headings. Number one, the election of Jesus Christ, the elect one. Number two, the election of the community, the group. And then number three, the election of the individual. So in this scheme, Bart argues that God chose Jesus to be the elect one, first and foremost, instead of the reform view that God elected certain individuals to be saved before the creation of the world. And this corporate view of election shows God ordaining more of a plan of salvation, whereby the elect community or the people would be in Christ. Now, some have argued that Karl Barth taught an, a universalism that everybody was included in Christ, whether they had personal faith in him or not. That is, um, that's debated. But his contemporary, Emil Bruner, charged Karl Barth with this indictment. Emil Bruner said this, Karl Barth, in his transference of salvation offered to faith to unbelievers, departs from the ground of biblical revelation in order to draw a logical conclusion he finds illuminating. The decision has thus been taken in Jesus Christ for everyone. It does not matter whether they know it or not or believe it or not. The main point is that they are saved. In other words, Emil Bruner basically charged Bart that he was a universalist, that everybody was pretty much included in Christ and was part of the elect, whether they knew it or not, whether they believed in Jesus or not. Um, there's some debate as to whether Bart actually believe that, but that's what some of his contemporaries accused him of. Now, I want to give you a quote from Joel Beakey. Joel Beakey has come out with a great new um, commentary, um, actually not a commentary, but Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley have come out, at least with the first two volumes, Reform Systematic Theology. Volumes 1 and 2 are already available through Crossway. 
They were published last year in 2020. And let me give you a, a statement from Joel Beakey. He writes this. Okay, so Beakey writes this. Paul did not write that God chose a course of action, such as to save the people who trusted in him, but that God chose people, us, selecting which individuals he would bless. Again, the direct object is not Jesus. The direct object is not a plan or a scheme or a purpose. The direct object is us, which would have included Paul, his original readers, both Jew and Gentile, and by extension, us. To what end or for what purpose did the Father choose us? To be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, we can get into some different views of infralapsarian versus supralapsarian. That's for a different podcast. But let's just assume that when God did the choosing, he sovereignly took into account the fact that no one was already holy and blameless before him. So the election or the choosing was to be holy and blameless. Again, let's think about faith. If faith is the condition, if faith is the reason why you are in Christ and thus become chosen, then would not the faithful in Christ who believed also, who are called saints in Christ, would their believing and thus their being saints be the reason God chose them? Because they were, when, when they believed, they became holy and blameless because they used their libertarian free will to believe, and thus they were marked in Christ, and thus the reason why God chose them was because they believed. Again, in the text, there are no conditions to be met for God to choose. Now, let's get to the ultimate question. What is the only basis or foundation or reason for God's choosing that the text says? Again, what does the text say and what does the text not say? Let's go back and read. We see this in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according, according to, according to, that, that, that's the Greek text here, and even in your English tells you the reason why, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will, or the good pleasure of his will. There is then a reason why God chose us. It was according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice again, if Paul wanted to say the reason why God chose us was because we used our libertarian free will, he could have given that according to. Paul could have said, God chose us and predestined us according to the exercise of our free will, which either God foresaw or God then put us in Christ based upon our choosing him. But it's not, it's not there. You see... Um, if it was based upon something we did to obligate God to choose us or make God contingent upon us to choose us or to elect us, then it would be based upon our merit. It's not based upon us being um, becoming holy and blameless. 
So Paul says it's based solely on his good pleasure and his will. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses two words that are really synonyms. Eudokia, the Greek word purpose, philema, will. Interestingly, these two Greek terms do not occur together, side by side, anywhere else in the New Testament. Why the redundancy? Why use two synonyms that basically express the same thing and put them side by side? I think Paul's doing something purposeful here. He's stressing that this is not of human will, not of human purpose, not of foreseen faith, not of merit that God made his choice. God's choice of individuals for salvation, God's predestinating of those to be adopted is independent of our actions, is not contingent on anything other than his own sovereign purpose, the good purpose of his will. Now, let's be fair here. Because a provisionist may argue, I'm not sure if they would, but let's just assume that, again, what do provisionists assert or affirm? God sovereignly gave people free will. That was part of his good, that was the good pleasure of God's will to give people free will. They may say that God's good pleasure and God's good will is to give sinners libertarian free will in order to choose whether or not they will be in Christ by faith. Now, That's an assertion. But again, this assertion has to be established in the text right before us of what the text says and what the text doesn't say and the actual flow and argumentation of Paul's wording. In reality, one has to import this idea of libertarian free will or individual choice as the cause or the condition of election into this passage of Scripture right here. Now, again, we're going to get down to verse 13 because that's where they immediately go. But in the immediate context where Paul is giving the verbs choose and predestine, the only reason why God does this according to the text and what the text says is according to the good pleasure of his will. It's God's purpose. It's God's will. It's God's doing. There are no conditions that have to be met. And we're going to see in chapter 2 why it's an impossibility for faith to even be a condition that has to be met in order for God to choose us. Now, Charles Hodge has a great, uh, um, has a great explanation of this passage in his commentary on Ephesians. Again, Charles Hodge, one of the great Princeton theologians back in the late 1800s, uh, great Reformed theologian of the, of the Princeton tradition. Listen to what Hodge says, quote, It was in Christ, as their head and representative, that they were chosen to holiness and eternal life in virtue of what he was to do on their behalf. There is a federal union with Christ which precedes all actual union and is the source of it. God gave a people to his son in the covenant of redemption, those included in that covenant, and because they are included in it, in other words, because they are in Christ as their head and representative, receive in time the gift of the Holy Spirit and all other benefits of redemption. Their voluntary union with Christ by faith is not 
the ground of their federal union. But on the contrary, their federal union is the ground of their voluntary union. It is therefore in Christ, as united to him in the covenant of redemption, that the people of God are elected to eternal life and to all the associated blessings. That is a very comprehensive, clear statement that I absolutely agree with. Because the big issue in the rub is, the point of contention is, when is a person in Christ? And Hodge makes the sense that our federal union with Christ in eternity past through the, through the Father's giving of, of, to the Son a particular people precedes or comes before all actual union or all voluntary union. That we at a point in time through the power of the Holy Spirit become partakers of Christ, have real union with Christ through faith, but the reason why we have that union with Christ through faith is because of the prior federal union we had with God, with Christ, through the doctrine of election. The provisionist has to do two things to this passage of Scripture so far. From verse 1, they have to make the description of the audience, the faithful in Christ, they have to argue or establish that the basis for being elected or the condition a sinner has to meet is faith that makes them in Christ. Again, there's nothing in the text to lead us to this interpretation. This description is that what it is, a description of the audience. It's not teaching us how they became the faithful in Christ. What they do then is they jump down to verses 13 and 14 and argue libertarian free will and that once you choose Jesus, you are then marked in Christ and that is the only time you were in Christ at your own choosing. So in other words, they would say, they they would deny that statement from Charles Hodge. They would say that your actual union in Christ, your voluntary union in Christ, is the grounding by which you become one of the elect. In other words, when you choose freely to become a Christian, then you're placed among the elect. What Charles Hodge, and I believe the Scripture teaches, is that your union with Christ is a federal union in the doctrine of election, even though you're not physically born yet, it's before the foundation of the world, but in God's mind, you are united with Christ in the doctrine of election, but that doesn't actually become a vital or voluntary union until a point in time when the Holy Spirit grants you the gift of faith, and then you choose Christ for salvation. And so there's a difference there. Again, the text argues that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. How could you be in Christ when you were not born? Or you had not done anything good or bad, or you had not used your libertarian free will to accept Christ. Again, what the provisionist would say is that there's no personal or individual election here unconditionally. They see election as more of a plan that God set up or a group, and then you voluntarily choose to be part of the group, and then once you choose, you are individually elect, but you become part of the elect based upon your free choice. And they argue that the only way The absolutely only way a person can be, quote, marked in Christ or in union with Christ or in Christ is at a point in time when you use your libertarian free will to believe in Jesus. Then and only then were you included or marked in Christ. Which brings up the question, which is the fundamental question I've been saying over and over again. This is the point of contention. 
When were God's elect, quote unquote, in Christ? Was that at a point in time where you used your libertarian free will to get in Christ? Or were you in Christ, in God's mind, before the foundation of the world, in federal union with Jesus in the covenant of redemption? See, I think the scripture teaches that we were in God's mind as objects of his electing love before the foundation of the world. In a sense, we were not yet positionally or vitally in union with Christ. It is what we would call a mystical union, which would come through regeneration and justification. But we were chosen in Christ. God individually chose and predestined us in Christ. Now, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the cross for a moment. Because Paul continues this Trinitarian formula as he moves from the Father's election to the Son's redemption. Verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Talking about the cross. So Paul moves from what the Father has done in election and in predestination to what the Son has done in redemption, then later on down to what the Spirit does in sealing. But notice that the Scripture is very clear that you were in Christ at His redemption. Now, what does this mean? What I'm, what I'm, what I'm arguing here is that if the provisionist is going to say that the only time you're in Christ is when you choose to get in Christ by libertarian free will, and that's the only time that it ever happens, it's not an eternity past when you're chosen in Christ, I want us to think about the cross for a moment. Were you in Christ at the cross? And when did the cross happen? Over 2,000 years ago. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, all those who were, by, who were his by election were included in that redemption. What does Paul say in Romans 6, 3-5? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I don't have time to unpack that passage in in, in Paul's theology there in Romans, but here's the point. When Jesus died on the cross and absorbed God's wrath and propitiated his anger and reconciled a people, you were in Christ at that time. If you hold to penal substitutionary atonement, you have to believe that Jesus died in the place of particular sinners actually, not hypothetically, and accomplished their full redemption. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him there. When Jesus rose again, you rose again with him there because you were in union with Christ. Not only in eternity past before the foundation of the world, but at the cross, you were in Christ. As one who was being died for by a substitute. You see, the text will not allow us to claim that the only time a person is in Christ is when they use their libertarian free will to trust Christ for salvation. Now, we do believe there is an application of our redemption at a point in time where we do experience real union with Christ, but that doesn't mean that we weren't in Christ before through federal headship through federal union, through a substitutionary atonement. You see, before we had those spiritual blessings in Christ, 
before we believed, the Father chose us in Christ. The Father predestined us in Christ. The Son redeemed us in particular on the cross in Christ. And then at a point in time, the Spirit applied that election, the Spirit applied that redemption to us in regeneration, and then we personally believed in Jesus. Now, Brian Abiscano is one of the leading proponents for corporate election. And let me give to you a statement that he made. Quote, on both the individual and corporate level, election is contingent, there's the key word, on faith in Christ. Election is contingent on faith in Christ. So how are you elected? Based upon your faith. What did Paul say back up there? It's according to the good pleasure of God's will. Again, faith is not imported, or faith does not show up up there as the reason for God's choosing. You see, the argument from the corporate view of election is that the basis or grounding of personal election is libertarian free will. And I'll talk about this in a moment. Faith is not viewed as a gift given to those who are dead in sin, but as an act of the will to place oneself in Christ and thus become part of the corporate entity of the church. Here's the point. Corporate election is a systematic theology that cannot be proven one way or another by the phrase, in Christ. In Ephesians 1, 4, or all the way through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, there's not enough in the text to prove their point. They have to create a theology around this. Now, let's move down to verses 13 and 14. Because the language of choosing, the language of predestination is up in verses 4 and 5 and actually down in verse 11 as well. And again, there's no um, foundation or purpose or reason or cause for the election. There's no foreseen faith. There's no libertarian free will. It's God chose us, the direct object. God predestined us. It was according to the good pleasure of his will. Now go down to verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The main verb down here in verses 13 and 14 is sealed. You were sealed. It's in the aorist passive indicative. This means that the Father is the one who's doing the action. He sealed us. We were passive in this being sealed. So let's agree with our provisionist brothers and sisters at this point. Yes, we do believe in Jesus. There is a human aspect or human, or human response that we do according to this verse. When you heard the word of truth, you believed. Okay, you heard, you believed, then you were sealed. Okay, so you hear the gospel, you believe in Jesus. We're not taking out any type of human response of faith because the text clearly says that. The text tells us that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, and you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. The question becomes, why did you believe? Is believing a gift given to us in sovereign grace as a result of our already being chosen? Or is our believing a libertarian free act that becomes the condition for us being in Christ and thus becoming 
one of the elect. Now, I think the ESV and the New American Standard give the best translation. This passage is a little hard to translate in the actual Greek, and there's, there's a lot of different ways that the, the translators have translated this. Um, so, I, I've read to you the ESV. Let me read to you the New American Standard. In him... You also, after having listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, or you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Almost exactly worded the way that the ESV is. And I think that's probably the closest to the original language that you've got. In him, there's that in him, you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, so you believed in him, you were sealed in him. Okay, now, let's look at the NIV. Because the NIV translation, I think, is where the provisionists get their understanding of this theology. Based upon a dynamic equivalent, a thought-for-thought translation that's not as close to the original language as the ESV or the New American Standard. So let's read the NIV. And you also were included in Christ... When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, since the NIV is a dynamic equivalent, the translators made an interpretive choice instead of giving a word-for-word rendering. Instead of reading in him as the direct object of believing, namely, when you believed in Christ, you were sealed. That, that's, that's the way you should take it. When you believed in him, having believed, you were sealed in him. So, you heard, so here's, the, here's the way that the, the, the Greek language would read. Okay, let's just break it down. Let's look at the order of how the Greek text would read. You heard the word of truth. You believed in him. You were sealed in him. You heard you believed, you were sealed. And the in him is kind of the direct object of the believing. When you believed in Jesus, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. What the NIV does is it says you were included in Christ when you heard the message. It doesn't use that direct object. It says when you heard the message of truth, you were included in Christ. You were marked in Christ. It doesn't say when you believed in Christ, you were sealed. So, the provisionist comes with the conclusion that a person is only included in Christ or marked in Christ upon believing. Because of the NIV translation, they look at this and say, believing is the condition to be in Christ. When you freely choose to believe in Jesus, you're included in Christ. At that point, you become part of the elect group. You were not individually chosen or predestined before the foundation of the world, and one day would place your faith in Christ based upon that election, but your placing your faith in Christ is the condition that you have to meet to become one of the elect. Now, where did this interpretation come from? Is it just because the NIV has a weird translation of that passage? Doesn't use the direct object in him as the source or as the as a direct object of believing in him? Well, again, I talked about the early church father Chrysostom who held that faith was a condition of, of being elected. But my contention is that Karl Barth popularized this view of corporate election, or his view of corporate election in the 1950s, and Herschel Hobbes, that great 
formidable Southern Baptist statesman and theologian from the 60s and 70s, adopted it and made it Southern Baptist doctrine in the 60s and thus encapsulated in the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message Commentary. Now, let me just give you Hobbes' interpretation because the provisionist understanding of Ephesians chapter 1 comes directly from Herschel Hobbes. Trust me on this. I've got Herschel Hobbes' commentary on Ephesians, New Man in Christ. I've got the Baptist Faith and Message 1963 commentary where Herschel Hobbes wrote it. Their theology of corporate election comes from Herschel Hobbes. Now, let me prove that to you. Herschel Hobbes argued that God elected people to, quote, be in Christ as opposed to the predestination of a particular individuals. He writes this, quote, So God elected that all who are, quote, in Christ will be saved. All outside of Christ will be lost. Okay? We wouldn't have a disagreement with that. If you're outside of Christ, you're lost. If you're in Christ, you'll be saved. But the question is, how do you become in Christ? Hobbes was argue that the way you come to be in Christ is by using your free will to believe in Jesus. And he goes down to verse 13 and makes that argument. He would basically say that God sets up a plan of salvation where God set up the elect group and the way you become in Christ is by using your free will to choose. He would say, quote, the final choice lay with man. God in his sovereignty set the conditions. Man in his free will determines the results. Now, the clearest teaching on this corporate view of election comes in his commentary on the Baptist faith and message, 1963, section 6, God's purpose of grace. He also does this in his Ephesians commentary, but let me just read this to you because this is, a pretty, this is probably about the most distinct statement that you will find that encapsulates the corporate view of election from the provisionist perspective. This is directly from the mouth of Herschel Hobbes from the um, 1963 Baptist Faith and Message. Quote, He elected that all who are in Christ shall be saved. In Christ is the boundary that God marked out beforehand, like building a fence around a field. God did this in sovereignty. In this act, he asked the counselor provision of no one. All who are within the fence, i.e. in Christ, shall be saved. Man is free to choose whether or not he will be in Christ. God never violates human personality. He will not save a man against his will. He knocks at the door of the heart, but he will not force it open. However, to all who of their own free wills will open the door, he enters and graciously saves apart from man's own efforts or merits. Did you catch that? God made the boundary. God predestined a, a plan. God made up a system that if you were in Christ, you would become part of the elect. How do you get to be in Christ? Notice what he says. Man is free to choose whether or not he will be in Christ. So there you have it. Verse 13, you choose to be in Christ, and once you choose, then you are marked in Christ. You become one of the elect group. He would say election refers to a plan of salvation for all men and not simply to the capricious choice of some men and the rejection of others. We'd reject his statement outright to say that election's not a plan. Election is of individuals. 
And it's not capricious. That's kind of a pejorative term that somehow God did this capriciously. There's no purpose. It's random. We know the purpose. It's according to the purpose of his will. And beyond that, we can say nothing. Why did God choose some and pass over others? The only answer the scripture gives us is it's according to the purpose of his will. Because that's God's choice. It's God's prerogative. God has the right to do that. Now, Paul's point in this passage, according to the provisionists, is that you become elect or chosen only when you believe in Jesus. So, experientially, you are in Christ when you believe. Before you believed, you were in Adam, you were under God's wrath, you were dead in your sins. You were not mystically united in Christ, experientially, positionally, until you had faith. Yes, we'll, 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 we'll grant that. You, were, you, you become united in Christ, positionally, experientially, upon the exercise of faith. And then that justification... His righteousness is imputed to you and your sins are imputed to Christ. You're in Christ. You're in vital union with Christ. But is that the only time you're ever in Christ? Is only when you believe. Is vital union or mystical union with Christ the only way that you're in Christ? Because Paul already said that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You were in Christ at the cross, at his redemption. So in God's mind, you were already in Christ by federal union, federal headship of Jesus, his son, before the foundation of the world. You were already in Christ when Jesus died on the cross in your place as a substitute. And yes, at a point in time when you believed, you were sealed with Christ. Uh, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So, in God's eternal mind, a person is considered to have the blessing of salvation in Christ. When is that blessing in Christ? Well, Paul gives the gamut from before the foundation of the world all the way to our home in heaven when we receive that inheritance. It's not only when we believe that we are in Christ. It's part of that. It is vital that we personally trust in Christ, but that's not the entirety of how Paul describes this going all the way back to eternity past, taking us all the way into eternity future with our inheritance. Now, let me give you a quote from Howard Hendrickson in his commentary. He says, quote, the question must be answered. How is it to be understood that it was, quote, in Christ that saints and believers were chosen? The answer that is often given is this, that it was determined in the counsel of God that in time these people would come to believe in Christ. The basic answer must be that before the foundation of the world, Christ was the representative and surety of all those who in time would be gathered into the fold. That's just a different way of arguing or restating what Charles Hodge had said in his commentary, probably a hundred years earlier than when Hendricks wrote his. So the exegetical conclusion that a person is only included or marked in Christ upon believing separates the entire Trinitarian thrust of this sentence. 
Our election was in Christ, our redemption was in Christ, our sealing was in Christ, the choice of sinners before the foundation of the world was in Christ. Believers were also in Christ in his redemption on the cross. Believers are sealed in him by the Holy Spirit upon belief. The only time aspect in this entire sentence, as far as giving us a time period, is that election took place before the foundation of the world. In God's mind, we were united with Christ in his electing love, as well as we were united in Christ on the cross, and experientially we have union with Christ upon believing and being sealed with the Spirit. The text does not demand that we only become in Christ upon meeting the conditions of hearing and believing, using our libertarian free will, in order to become one of the elect in Christ. The text does not give that. Now, let me just answer another question. Let's say it was. Let's say that the argument is that faith is the cause of your election. How does Paul answer that in Ephesians chapter 2? Can Paul substantiate a claim in chapter 1 that faith is what puts you in Christ and is the cause of your election? Does Paul agree with that, the same author, in Ephesians chapter 2? How does Paul start Ephesians chapter 2? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does Paul argue here? Paul argues that unbelievers are dead in sins, must be made alive in Christ. And Paul argues that grace must be granted in such a powerful way that it actually creates the faith to believe in Jesus. When you think about what he says there in verses 4 and 5, he gives the answer to the deadness. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of God not a result of works so that no man may boast grace is God's sovereign supernatural powerful choice to raise spiritually dead sinners to new life. And in the process of raising spiritually dead sinners to new life, he grants them the gift of faith. See, those who are dead in sin cannot in and of themselves produce faith. They can't believe. They don't have libertarian free will. Faith has to be granted to them. That's why Paul says, this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What's the gift of God? The faith. The very faith that you need to actually believe in Jesus has to be given to you as a gift. So if in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, faith is what you use in your libertarian free will to get you into God's election, 
Paul would argue in chapter 2 that you could not even produce that faith in and of yourselves. God had to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life and by grace grant you faith. You see, humans do not receive the benefit of election by believing. No, it's just the opposite. They're elected in Christ to actually believe. And that belief, that believing, that faith is actually a gift of God. You see this in Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So as many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. What's the order? Well, you can just read it in your English. Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. The reason they believed is because they were already appointed to eternal life in the sense that they were among the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. The word appointed is in the perfect tense, while the word believed is in the aorist. So let me give you some grammar here. When a perfect tense verb is in a sentence with an aorist tense verb, the perfect tense verb stands as the cause or the source or the reason as to why the aorist verb happens. In other words, just if you look at the Greek grammar, what's the reason for the believing? The having already been appointed. The perfect tense of the verb means that God's appointing or ordaining took place in the past, but is relevant to the present. In other words, the text does not say they were ordained to believe. The text says they were ordained to eternal life. It was not that they were predisposed to believe, but that God in eternity past had sovereignly ordained or predestined these to eternal life. And then in time, when the gospel was preached to them, they believed as a result of their already being chosen to eternal life. In other words, faith is the fruit of election, not the other way around. That would be synergism. It's not, I believed and thus was included in Christ and became part of the appointed group. It said, at first it was, God chose me, God appointed me to eternal life, and because he had already chosen me for eternal life and I was dead in sin, he granted me the gift of faith and thus I believed. I believed. So here are some concluding thoughts. The provisionist argues that the faithful in Christ in verse 1 is not merely just a description, but explains how a person gets into Christ. Again, that has to be established from the text. They say a person, quote, gets into Christ upon libertarian free will, based upon jumping down to verse 13, when they hear they are marked in Christ. They do not read the text at face value, where there are no conditions for God's electing choice that sinners have to meet. In verses 4 and 5, the only reason is according to the good pleasure of God's will. There's no faith, there's no conditions, there's nothing there that makes God's choice contingent upon our actions. They read the word God shows us, not as individuals who were personally chosen by God before the foundation of the world, but they make that plural pronoun us and change it more into a plan, a scheme a group, or maybe even Jesus. And then they pop down to verse 13, and they import libertarian free will as the condition for election. Once we choose freely, we are thus included in Christ and become part of that predetermined group or plan. And I believe the text teaches just the opposite. Again, what does the text say and what does the text not say? 
What are the direct objects of the verbs? What are mere descriptions and what are explanations according to the reasoning behind why God chooses? There's one, if you can just take one thing away from this, what's the one reason or, or the grounding or the foundation for why God chooses? Is it because we used our faith to believe and then we became part of the elect group? Is that even read into the text anywhere? Or is that very clearly... What's the reason why God chose us? What's the reason why God predestined us? It was according to the good pleasure of his will. He was under no obligation to choose us, to predestine us, to save us, to send Christ. He did it because it was his good pleasure. It was his purpose. It was his decree. It was his ordained plan. Not human will, not responding to what we would do, but solely upon his sovereign good pleasure alone. Well, hopefully this deep dive into the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and a little bit into chapter 2 has been helpful to delineate the differences between how we understand just a, a clear walk-throughing, walk-throughing, walking through of the text of Ephesians 1, looking at, taking a deep dive, and how that compares side-by-side side with the provisionist understanding of the text and their view of corporate election. Well, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, please give us a positive review and rating on um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Uh, share this on your social media platforms. Uh, get the word out. If you do have questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to seancole.net, and you can contact me there. Well, until next time, will we all keep our eyes on Jesus?